welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute. Welcome back, everyone. This is the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute. I'm Ryan Aris, and I am joined again by Dr. Joe Boot and by Nate Wright, our incoming Canadian director. Great to see you both. I went ahead uh, after last week's episode and I put on a graphic t-shirt thinking I'm going to be like Joe and his Top Gun shirt and now he comes in in a spring blazer. So thanks. Uh, Just trying to class the place up, eh, Joe? That, yeah, yeah. Keeping it fresh, keeping it real. There's a balance, thesis, antithesis, uh, etc. <laughs> So we're, we're going to get to our uh, third and final planned Q&A episode on this Ten Commandments series. Again, we are, uh, we're grateful for all of your engagement and interaction for the questions and comments that uh, all of you listeners have sent in. We're going to deal with uh, most of the rest of those on, uh, on this episode today before we move into a, uh, a summer mini-series that uh, we'll tell you more about uh, in the coming weeks. So we're looking forward to that. Before we begin, I uh, just want to make it to make it clear we're here uh, this last week of June. Uh, this is not the last week to apply, but the last week uh, to apply and be eligible for a bursary for the Worldview Leadership Academy. There is a uh, there's scholarship money available uh, for your registration at the Worldview Leadership Academy. That program's happening July 23rd through 28th in Port Colborne, Ontario. And if you want to get to want to save a couple hundred dollars off your registration, uh, we would like you to write us a 500, maybe 750 word essay on the importance of Christian worldview training. Basically tell us why, why you think you want to be there, why you value this kind of training and if we if we like your essay, if we think that uh, you're a, a thoughtful young person, and we, we probably will if you're going to take the time to do that, then uh, uh, you'll be able to save a couple hundred bucks off of your registration fee. The deadline for that is July 1st. So this is, uh, this is the last week for uh, scholarship eligibility. There are a few places left for that. So get those in, ezrainstitute.com. All of the information is there. There are big links on the front page that, uh, that you can follow to get to, uh, to all of those forms. And we'll look forward to, uh, to hearing from you. We'll look forward to seeing you in less than a month's time. That's our, uh, that's our announcements for today. Want to, uh, want to dive in to a couple more questions that have emerged from this, uh, from this series guys. And I haven't given you a chance to speak yet, but you'll get, uh, you'll get plenty of opportunity in just a moment here. Uh, the first one it deals, uh, I guess, most, uh, most closely fits in uh, with the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Uh, it's not specifically uh, related to the Ten Commandments, but it, uh, it's covered under the broader Mosaic law. And the question runs, is there any conflict between the first generation of Adam and Eve's children marrying one another and then the later prohibition on incest in the Mosaic law? So as, uh, as everyone knows, uh, he's the, uh, the questioner's listener is referring to various, uh, various rules and regulations for who, is, who you are eligible uh, to marry and who is off the table as being too close of kin. So I'll, uh, I'll open that up to, uh, to you, Joe, and I'll then, uh, Nate, if you've got anything to follow up with, uh, turn it over to you. Sure. Well, it's good to be able to uh, tidy up this Ten Commandments series uh, by getting to, to most of the rest of these questions. And we hadn't intended to do quite as many Q&A episodes, but uh, we actually thought, well, you know what? There's enough of these questions and uh, it's great that Nate's available with us again this week. And some of them emerged from the episode he was uh, he was part of. So we wanted to take that opportunity and I think sometimes when you talk about the Decalogue, you deal with the Ten Commandments, you often find that uh, it, it actually raises a lot of questions, a lot of details that uh, people have perhaps had on their mind 
and never felt that they'd had a satisfactory response or a satisfactory answer to, or they'd been wrestling with something. And I think this is one of those uh, that, uh, you know, it's uh, not not all that unlike the um, the type of uh, who was Kane's wife question. You know, it's one of those one of those loitering, lingering questions that 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 people have about the beginnings and origins of the human family. So I would say, first of all, no, that there is no conflict between the uh, intermarriage of brothers and sisters at the beginnings of the human race, beginnings of the human family, and the mosaic legislation uh, with respect to incest. And there's, I think, two um, preeminent reasons for that. So we might as well tackle the who was uh, Cain's wife uh, question at the same time. Cain's wife actually would have been one of his uh, sisters or um, one of his cousins. Uh, so it would have been a close uh, family marriage. The the reason for this, of course, is that the human race, the human family had to get started. And when we actually look at scripture itself, we look at the spread of human history. One of the things we learn is that actually we're all distant cousins. We are all descended from the uh, first of all, of course, our first parents, Adam and Eve. And then uh, shortly thereafter, we're all descended from Noah's three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, from the eight people, basically, that boarded the ark. And so the entirety of the human family uh, stems from those three patriarchs. And actually, we are therefore all of us from one blood, remember the Apostle Paul said to the Greeks, from one blood he made all men uh, to live on the, the face of the earth. So there is uh, only one human family. We're all descended from that original human pair. And the that, that constitutes the, the unity of the human race. It's a very important doctrine from uh, the point of view even of redemption because in Adam all die, and in Christ, all shall be made alive. So we've got the headship of Adam at the beginnings of the human race. We've got the headship of Jesus Christ uh, in terms of the new humanity, those who've been reborn in the last Adam, the Lord Jesus. So the human family had to get going. It had to get started. And that required close familial marriages. And that was... Uh, nothing unusual. It would have been seen as nothing unusual. In fact, if memory serves, and I hope my memory is accurate on this, I think it is. I think Abraham himself was married to a half-sister. So the these close um, intermarriages continued through the period of the patriarchs. But with the Mosaic legislation, there is then expressed a concern for the forbidding of very close familial marriages. And the, the, there are two, I think, fundamental reasons why it gets introduced at that point. The first and uh, very practical reason, it's there in God's commandments, is that God required that we would uh, spread out, multiply, and fill the earth. And you will find that if people stayed within very, very close family marriages, one of the things that does, it actually restrains, puts uh, something in the way of people spreading out and filling the earth. It tends to form a, what we would call a, a tight pyramid type of patriarchy where everybody is under a familial head of a tribe, basically, uh, now, I'm, I, at Ezra Institute, we, we believe in what we would call a biblical soft patriarchy, but we would not advocate for the notion that entire households all are going to be governed in terms of kinship tribally under sort of one grand poo bar at the top with this uh, family immediately underneath it. And that uh, that's problematic from a scriptural standpoint, because for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And there's a, 
a new family there being established. So if you have very close marriages, it's usually because there are reasons of power uh, and geography uh, that are central. So you see it in the uh, the, the line of European uh, um, royal families, basically, and aristocratic families, you often find that in the past, it was to do with um, power, it was to do with uniting a European aristocracy and uh, European monarchies. And so there were very, very close intermarriages. And actually, it led to all kinds of problems, which leads to my second and final point. Um, in fact, uh, the madness of King George and, and others in the history of England was often associated with the closeness of these marriages. So the first reason is that God actually commissions us to spread out, fill the earth, multiply, and very close intermarriages mitigate a uh, work against that fundamental commandment. And remember, Babel, one of the reasons God undermined that project, because it was resisting God's command to spread out and fill the earth. The second reason is, a, is an equally practical one, but it's I've already hinted at it. And that is that with the entrance of sin into the world uh, at creation, uh, sorry, at the fall, uh, when we fell from the state of innocence, uh, sin meant that creation came under a curse. And with that curse, what is happening, of course, modern genetics has taught us this, but like with God's, uh, um, obviously, uh, God's complete knowledge of bacterium and viruses and the way in which the Mosaic legislation taught the Israelites to have their sewage systems uh, away from the camp, to, to uh, burn the clothes and then even the houses of those who died of infectious, infectious diseases, the way they introduced, God introduced quarantine laws. This was all actually promoting the health of Israel, which it did remarkably. Uh, they wouldn't have fully understood why all of those laws were important, even the health benefits of circumcision and so on. Those would have been unknown to the Jews in a modern scientific sense, not unknown to God. And of course, just as God knows more than we do about bacteria and viruses, he knows all about the human genome and the way our genes work so that when you marry somebody, so with Ryan, you there, and Nate, you know, with, with your wives, you get married, you have a child, and basically those chromosomes on with either partner when you have a baby zip together uh, like a zipper and bring those genes together. And if the same copying error is found on both sides of those chromosomes, on both sides of that zipper, to continue that uh, metaphor, then you have a genetically transmitted disease. And g g this uh, legislation given through Moses is for the health and benefit of the human population so that uh, these genetic copying errors do not build up and become eventually catastrophic for the uh, physical or the mental health of the offspring. So there's no contradiction. Uh, the, the human race had to get going, um, but with the entrance of sin over time, God introduces uh, legislation that is going to protect the health and well-being of the human family. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, and um, it's it, it's interesting, um, even even as you say that, Joe, that the law was given about you know uh, twenty five hundred years after Adam and Eve, and so the the getting started of the first family, as you said had these generations and generations to get going before God codified these incest laws into his law. Um, and I, I, I can't add anything to that except to point out how incredibly practical God's law is. Oftentimes we think about God's law as restrictive, um, but I think as you just mentioned there, kind of the two reasons you gave is that there's a missional aspect to God's law 
right? That he had uh, in his mind that man would fill out, spread out, take dominion and, and populate the earth so that his image bearers cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And then there's a creational aspect to his law, which had to do with his vast knowledge of how genetics work and how inter in intermarrying um, could potentially damage. And uh, so you just look at that and you say, God's law is never arbitrary. It's highly practical. It's always both missional and creational. And I think it's it's helpful for us, and this is why it's so important for for Christians to dig into God's law because it actually uh, raises our affections for the lawgiver when we understand its its uh, missional and its creational uh, side of things. So, yeah, and actually, where that law is is neglected and not obeyed. So, for example, in parts of the developing world where Christian law has not penetrated deeply, uh, even into some of the Islamic contexts, for example you find that these close intermarriages continue and there are very, very serious health consequences as a result. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, thanks guys. I want to uh, pivot uh, a little bit here based on the questions that we've received. Uh, the rest of these uh, all have to do with uh, going back to our uh, our episode that uh, that we did with Nate on "Thou shalt not steal," and there are a lot of uh, uh, practical questions as well as uh, sort of seek seeking a, a theological rationale for certain uh, particular present states of affairs. Uh, this is a uh, this is a fraught question that that uh, we all participate in. So I guess it's no surprise that we've got a lot of. Uh, a lot of uh, seeking understanding going on around it. Uh, so uh, the first one is a, uh, a two-part question about, uh, about the church and state. And the question is, what do we make of and how do we, how do we think of the church accepting charitable designation in the West uh, in order to issue uh, tax receipts? And following up on that, what will the church do if the state suddenly changes its mind, changes its status, puts certain conditions on that charitable status, that uh, that churches would be forced to uh, to compromise if they want to uh, if they want to maintain that status. It's a it's a good question. I think um, I think if pastors who who are listening haven't wrestled through these questions about what to do. Um, it's certainly one that they ought to wrestle through with their elders board now. I think uh, in our episode, uh, Ryan, we talked a little bit about when uh, Justin Trudeau introduced his sort of um, uh, the strings attached to government grant money for summer internships um, right. where charities had to sign on to what he called Canadian reproductive values, which essentially meant that you had to agree with uh, – with his stance on abortion on demand in order to get uh, government money to pay uh, summer interns and student workers. Um, and so I, I think the moment that the state begins to impose morality and moral uh, strings that are attached to its money, uh, I think that the church needs to um, stand on its convictions and be willing to lose its charitable status. Um, there's nothing biblically that would say that we must uh, have uh, charitable status. In fact, I think biblically speaking, uh, we believe in the separation of, of church and state, though it's, it's very different than what most people understand. What that means is that uh, the state is, it's, is a separate sphere delegated uh, by God to civil authorities, and the church is its own government structure, separated from the state, not under the state. Um, so then that, of course, begs the question that came in is, well, why then does the, does the church adhere to charity laws that would allow the government to give it charitable status? Isn't that putting the church under uh, the direction of the state, which we disagree with? I would, I would look at this as a sort of practical wisdom issue. I think that uh, I don't believe that because I believe in the separation, because I believe that the church is its own governing body, I don't believe that the state has a right to tax the church in terms of its uh, income or in terms of its, uh, its land ownership. Uh, I don't think the state should be taxing anybody because of their land ownership, but that's a totally different question that we didn't get. Um, but in order to 
protect the resources of the kingdom of God, in order to protect the, the resources of the church, I think that uh, it's just a wise, practical move for churches if their conscience or consciences are not violated to allow themselves to have charitable status so that they cannot be taxed by the state. What an individual Christian who gives to a Christian uh, charity, whether it be a church or a, a separate ministry, uh, what they do with the tax receipt that they receive is a conscience issue of their own. Um, but I would say as a church, the reason our church is a registered charity is because right now we don't have to violate anything biblically in order to do that. And it protects the resources of the church from paying uh, taxes that I don't think biblically are, are owed to the state in any way. So that's sort of how, how I've thought through it. Yeah, thanks, Nate. Joe, I want to... Uh... I want to hear your response and your insight to this as well. But uh, before before we get to that, just a, uh, I guess a, qu- a question or inquiry of fact. Uh, you uh, you pastored in Canada here for close to twenty years. Uh, back resident in England, are the uh, are the charitable laws related to churches? How do how do they compare uh, England to Canada? Are they similar? Are they the same? Did you say? Yeah, that's uh, that's what my that's what I'm wondering. Yeah, it's very very similar. So the uh, and you found you find really when you look back that these sort of modern charity law was introduced at a similar time. It was very much a gradual work in progress and process from the 19th century. So the 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 structure the the setup is very similar for the most part. One of the the differences in the UK from some of parts of Europe with regard to the church-state question that Nate um, appropriately uh, raised there as well uh, is that the 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 established church in England does not collect tithes from the population um, from the general population from the state, uh, whereas the some of the churches in Europe do. Um, now, I'd have to check my history to see if there ever was a point where the English church or the Church of England was uh, was directly collecting, the state was directly collecting a tithe uh, for, the, for the church, um, but there are no compulsory tithes taken by the state for the established church. And um, the again, it's worth pointing out here as well, that sometimes the church-state relationship is is misunderstood. Um, the the establishment in England basically meant that the the king, uh, the queen, now the king, is titular head of the church. That does not mean the king or the queen has a right to preach or administer the sacraments or collect tithes tithes for the church. Uh, it means that they. Uh, have an obligation to defend the faith uh, and they've got an obligation to defend the church. And I think there's, um, there's a certainly, you know, fair-minded Protestants have, have argued for and against that sort of arrangement. The Presbyterians in Scotland um, in this very quick whistle-stop tour of the history um, during the Cromwellian era wanted to see Presbyterianism established uh, in England um and uh whereas Cromwell was wanting a uh, a, a Christian state but uh you know a, a a broader freedom for all of the churches of course after about 1688 uh and the glorious revolution and then um uh, later on you know it was it became uh very much the case that all of the churches all of the Orthodox Christian churches, at least uh, initially that weren't Roman Catholic, um, had uh, had freedom, and so the in the in the United States there wasn't a establishment at the federal level because it was uh, regarded as potentially a source of persecution, but there was establishment at the state level. So Nate is absolutely right. We must separate the jurisdiction and authority of of church and state. They are distinct spheres. They can be uh, interlaced to a degree, 
um, where I think the, and this issue of charitable status in, is is part of that uh, interlacement, but their jurisdiction and authority doesn't cross over. So uh, it doesn't matter whether you're even the king, you've got no right to, to act as priest, no right to act as prophet, no right to uh, interfere in the in the life of the church, except to defend her, um, and so anyway, that's a that's a broader discussion. But I think it was um, indirectly raised by what you were saying there. But in general, with this whole charitable law issue, the situation is very very similar. Um, what I would add to what Nate was saying there is simply that um, the church historically asserted its immunity from taxation, so. It, it wasn't sort of charitable in the sense that we think of modern charities, uh, contemporary charities and contemporary charitable law. What happened is the church over time got captured in the charitable law of the state for the most part, but it wasn't taxed because it was seen as Christ's embassy. So throughout uh, the history of much of the history of the church in the West, the church was not taxed by the state because you cannot tax the uh, the property uh, and the resources of a foreign embassy on your soil. So, uh, and I think we've touched on this before in podcasts, but the Canadian embassy or the British embassy or British High Commission um, in, uh, in various foreign lands, you can't tax an African state or an Asian state, can't tax the... British or Canadian embassy or U.S. embassy uh, on their territory because it's it's British or Canadian or U.S. territory. The embassy itself, if you attack that embassy, that's uh, an attack on the country whose embassy it is. And the church is Christ's embassy, and it's throughout all of the world. And the, the West recognized very quickly that uh, we are his ambassadors, the church is therefore his embassy, and therefore it is free, it is immune from the taxation of the state. That's difficult for us to grapple with now because we've become largely statist in our thinking, even as Christians, and we think of the state having this sort of all-pervasive power to tax whatever whatever it wants, but taxation uh, implicit in the idea of taxation is a claim of eminent domain or a claim of ownership uh, that uh, the, the, the state has a rightful claim on something and therefore it's going to tax a portion of it. Well, the state has no rightful claim upon the church of Jesus Christ. And if only we'd understood this uh, during the last three years, we'd maybe have had in general a different posture uh, to the state's treatment of the church. But this is Christ's embassy. You can't just waltz in and seize Christ's embassy and seize his resources. This belongs to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So the church was immune from taxation. That was its history. With the modern age, basically Christian states, and probably with good intention uh, initially, wanted to ensure that the that with modern taxes, so the whistle-stop tour of modern taxation is that the vast majority of the taxes that we pay today are post-First and post-Second World War taxes. Uh, that They were introduced initially as temporary measures to fund an emergency, right? The war effort. But when you give the state things like this, it very, very rarely lets them go. Uh, even after an emergency. And what we saw after, especially after World War II, was the explosive growth. It happened after World War I as well, but after World War II, it seemed like an unstoppable juggernaut. You had the explosive growth of the socialistic welfare state with every kind of taxation you can think of, the property taxes in some countries like Britain, inheritance taxes, steeply progressive wealth taxes, uh, um, progressive taxation on our on your income, and so what were very modest taxations, a, uh, a sort of basic head tax, uh, and uh, a tax on goods, on luxury goods. Suddenly, all kinds of new taxes are introduced to pay for the explosion of the welfare state. That, of course, has a big impact on charity and on charitable organisations because. 
uh, people no longer have the kind of same kind of disposable income that they were giving to private charities. That uh, and when you formed a charity in England or in Canada and gained charitable uh, um, uh, status or recognized charitably, there was a benefit both to the giver in terms of a, a tax write-off. In England, you have a direct benefit to the charity itself. Not only is the charity uh, not taxed, but um, the charity will get in the UK system some of the tax back as well. So the benefit is split between the donor and the, the charity. So, and don't forget, the state isn't giving charities anything. The state isn't giving the church anything. All it's doing is saying that it foregoes the prerogative of taxing the income of that church or charity. The state doesn't have any money. It's not a, it's not a productive institution. It doesn't have any money. It hasn't That's taken true. from somewhere else. It takes from industry. It takes from producers uh, to fund the, the, the minimal role it's meant to have, which is to be a ministry of justice. But when it becomes a ministry of education and uh, a ministry of health and a ministry of charity and ministry of everything else, it starts to take vast swathes of, uh, of um, corporations and business and family income. And it never ceases to think of new ways to tax you with death taxes and inheritance taxes. Now air taxes, we're taxing the very air we breathe with carbon taxes. Um, and so this is what happens when the state makes a messianic claim, basically declares itself to be God indirectly and claims an ownership. Remember, taxation is a claim of ownership. When you start paying huge property taxes, which the church is exempt from because it belongs to Christ, um, the state is fundamentally making a claim to your property. It's saying you are going to pay the state rent to live on your own land. The land that you bought, the land that, that you care for, uh, the land that you look after, you are going to pay the state rent on that land. That's the essence of a property tax, and largely it's used to fund state education. So in this whole debate and discussion, it's very important to remember what the state is claiming. And so when we talk about the church's charitable status, this is not some gracious and overwhelming, compassionate gift of state to the church. No, the state has always been, the church, I should say, has always been immune as Christ's embassy from the taxation of the state. It was captured in modern charitable law to continue to recognize that immunity. So Nathan, Nathan is absolutely right. Uh, for as long as we are able to, without violation of our consciences, we, uh, we're taxpayers. Every Christian is a taxpayer. Why should the uh, we not benefit from uh, tax exemption? Uh, all those people who go to church and pay their tithes and gifts are taxpayers. And moreover, and more importantly, as I've said, the church is immune from taxation. So the state has no right to do that. Now, the separate subsequent question, which I want to hand over to Nate because I've been talking a while, um, is th that uh, the, 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 the question of if the state, when it becomes humanistic, this wasn't a risk, this wasn't, a, this wasn't even a conversation before the secular state starts becoming pagan. And as it starts to become pagan, it starts to threaten Christian charities. We've already seen it. The Liberal Party's own manifesto threatened the pregnancy care centers, charitable status. Nate rightly mentioned that the summer jobs program, which was basically a, an, a, a religious orthodoxy test by the pagan state. Will you support the state religion in your exercise of your charity? And if you're not prepared to do that, where well, you're not getting access to, to these funds for summer jobs. Um, so the question, which, which Nate can wade in on now, uh, fundamentally is what's, this, what's the church going to do when the state starts to threaten its status over issues like life, abortion, or, um, euthanasia, identity and sexuality well then at that point the church has to has to say um that 
even though in this pagan setting, our immunity from taxation is now being denied and we are therefore being persecuted. The state is making a messianic claim. Uh, and now the charitable status, um, our immunity through charitable status is being denied. Then we have no choice but to say then uh, we we forego, we, we uh, pass on your charitable status um, and we have to accept the taxation of our institution. We've got no other choice unless the church is going to be closed down uh, and the pastors and the elders thrown in prison. And it simply isn't worth going to prison over the over the the issue of taxation. Um, uh, we've the, the the way the church moved into this was to bring people to faith in Christ and transform the culture. And that would be the the long road back again to asserting as we continue to assert Christ's lordship, we would have to forego um, the uh, the charitable status. But I'm sure Nate's got things to add to that. Yeah, I, I think that uh, uh, I, I love seeing Joe get fired up about this stuff because it uh, it, it makes for a, a fun episode. Uh, I think that the uh, I think you're absolutely right that. <clears throat> Churches have to be ready and willing to forego whatever tax benefit uh, we we get. I've I've been asked often, you know, as things continue to get worse and the the um, state, which you rightly identified as a pagan state, um, is more and more revealing itself as such. I think the uh, what's happened over the last decade, but certainly began to uh, snowball in the last three years has been the, the the facade of neutrality has been lifted, right? We've always, uh, Joe and, and Ryan and I have all been saying that neutrality is a myth for many, many years, but it seems as though the churches are waking up to that reality that no, you know, secular education is not neutral. No, secular healthcare is not neutral. There is no neutrality. Uh, and so I think as, as people are waking up to that reality, as the pagan states, uh, paganism and uh, anti-God agenda are being more and more revealed, uh, people ask these questions, what are we going to do when? And, uh, and I think that uh, we could ask the question, you know, what, what do you think will happen to church giving <laughs> you know, if people don't get a tax receipt for their giving? And I would just say, I, I think um, what we've experienced over the last couple of years is that uh, when when, when Christians are persecuted in various ways, uh, there's something about the, the power of the Spirit of God and the sufficiency of the grace of God that empowers Christians to live more potent Christian lives. And so I, th I think that the, the giving will probably only go up. So I don't think we ought to be concerned about that. We, we serve the God who has a cattle on a, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. So, um, but I do think Christian churches need to be ready because I think the time is coming sooner rather than later. I remember having a conversation with my elders board saying, or at the last federal election, that I believe that if if Trudeau was to get reelected, we would likely be losing our charitable status or have to surrender it within his next term. Uh, I'm no prophet, so hopefully I don't get stoned if that doesn't come true. But I do think that uh, that that time is coming sooner rather than later, and so churches need to be willing to relinquish that. But I want to go back to something that Joe said, because I think this is really important. I want to be careful how I say it, but um, the church is the, the he heaven's embassy on earth. And you mentioned that if, if the, um, uh, the American embassy was to be attacked on foreign soil, it's a, it's a declaration of war against America itself. And so the moment that the secular state begins to more overtly claim ownership over Christ's embassy on earth, they are declaring open war against the God of heaven. And that's a really dangerous place to be. Uh, and I, I would just say that Christians then need to understand what uh, a, a warfare mentality looks like. I'm not talking about taking up arms or anything like that. I'm talking about what does uh, a, a Christian guerrilla warfare, uh, a religious ideological warfare. Paul uh, describes it in 2 Corinthians 10 when he says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are spiritual and they're powerful to destroy strongholds. And, uh, and so we, I think, as Christians need to be ready for that when it comes because uh, and we were, we were, I think all, all of us were at a uh, conference uh, last year called the Church at War Conference as we talked about the, uh, 
the the war that the state declared on churches across the globe during the COVID pandemic, when the state came in and said, "No, you shall not gather for worship in this way." That was that was a a ownership claim that the state was making over Christ's uh, embassy on Earth. And I would say that the churches that understood that that was a declaration of war and and stood their ground against the state overreach have actually been experiencing a season of of unimaginable blessing. And, uh, and that's this sort of grace that becomes sufficient in, in wartime, uh, in, in, in wartime. So I think that the, the church needs to be ready for those things. I think um, because we know ethically the state has no claim over the resources of the church, that we ought to hold on to these things for as long as possible. This, this yep. is, we're sort of, as, as Joe said, this is a, a sort of loophole that we found ourselves in where the state is not coming after our resources now because we are protected by charity laws. So they might not have the right mentality about why they're not taxing the church, but the reality is they're not taxing the church and the church ought to be thankful for the provision of God in that. But the moment that that uh, feigned area of neutrality melts away, the church, I think, needs to be ready for um, to stand firm. And, uh, and that doesn't mean not paying taxes. I think that that means fighting all that we can for tax reform. I remember when uh, uh, Pastor Doug Wilson was at uh, the Ezra Institute for a, an escarpment lecture. And uh, one of the questions uh, was asked, you know, should Christians pay taxes knowing that our taxes go to fund abortion and all these various things? And, and Doug, uh, I think, very wisely said, he, he pointed out to when, uh, when Christ uh, paid the temple tax for him and Peter and said that that didn't make uh, uh, Christ a sinner because he was funding some of the wicked things that Rome was doing. Once you pay your tax, you're not responsible for how the state uses that particular tax. But then Doug right away turned around and said, one of the, one of the best battles that Christians can engage in in the culture is fighting for tax reform right now. Fight to keep the churches untaxed. Fight to um, even, even imagine what it would look like if uh, the, those Christians who have pulled their kids and, and I would just say all Christians ought to pull their kids from secular education, from the public school system, and imagine what would be funded in the kingdom of God if we got tax, taxes back for, um, because we're not using the public system anymore. So I think that this is a battle that's certainly worth fighting, and I think that that fight is likely coming to us, whether we want it or not, in the next decade. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, it's, uh, that's well uh, it's interesting, too, that... Um, how and 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 when this might uh, uh, come to the doorstep of the of the church i i i have a recollection and i'm i don't want to uh, get my facts muddled up here but i know that this conversation has either already happened or has already been implemented in parts of toronto that when you are if you're not grandfathered in in an old building as a church uh, and you uh, build a, a church on a piece of property then uh, already they're looking at the worship space is not taxed. The, the worship center, the chapel part is not taxed, but anything ancillary to that, let's say you've got some seminar rooms, you've got a fellowship hall, you've got a gymnasium, you've got these other things where then those parts are being taxed. Now, that was um, certainly the case when we were looking at property in Toronto, um, I don't know whether that changed under the current uh, Ontario government. Ryan may have something to say on that, but uh, so that that. But at any rate, even if that's not currently in force, that was certainly it was at the time. I have a suspicion it still is that in certain areas. So they're already sort of looking at the the, the space of the church, and because of their secular pagan view of religion, which is well, that's just a cultic act of worship, and because nothing else that you do is religious. Education is not religious, that's neutral. Fellowship, you know, uh, gymnasiums, whatever it may be. Then anything else that's the church's property that's not actually used in the sanctuary, that's going to be taxable. Another issue is that um, many churches, uh, because of the litigious character of society, as well as many Christian charities, are charitable corporations. So in the event that churches were to lose charity status, uh, they might be subject to corporation tax. Now, you might be able to just say, well, we're a not-for-profit now, uh, uh, rather than a charitable not-for-profit. Um, so, there, again, 
all of these things would have to be explored and looked at, but um, it it may not be just implications, in other words, for the for the tither in terms of no longer being able to write off uh, your tithing, your donations to the church for a tax receipt. There may be very direct implications by way of property taxes, possibly even corporation taxes, depending on how churches were treated if they lost uh, charity status. Um, in terms of those various other forms of taxation. And I think that's a very uh, insightful and interesting point that Nate made there, which is just as it's a declaration of war on a uh, a foreign embassy, it is a declaration of war on the church, just as progressive taxation and inheritance taxes are a declaration of war on the family by the state. Uh, it would be a similar kind of declaration on on the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks, guys. Uh, it's just uh, just interesting to uh, to Nate's point, especially over the past three years, how those churches that have uh, that have uh, worked to st- stay true to the conviction that uh, that Christ is Lord and that He deserves His worship in the way that He has called for it, uh, those churches are thriving uh, in terms in. Uh, financially not to, not least of all in many ways but uh, we we always talk about in churches about how giving uh, giving of our uh, our financial resources is an act of worship and it's just interesting to uh, to see that those those churches that have historically been larger uh, have bigger budgets bigger staff bigger buildings these kinds of things these are the ones that uh, that are are often struggling now uh, in this uh, this COVID or if we want to say post-COVID environment. And I would, uh, I would just exhort to any, uh, any Christians listening, if, uh, if you are giving to your church primarily because you're going to get a tax break, um, t- take a look at yourself, uh, consider what you're doing, consider that, to, that your giving is an act of worship and offer that uh, in, in the right spirit. Uh, knowing that uh, yeah, it's a it's a wonderful blessing to you, uh, but that's not primarily what it's about. Yeah, and if you're going to make your your church the primary recipient of the tithe, remember the tithe belongs to the Lord, not to the church. Um, that's right, and that's important too. You have the responsibility to administer your tithe. You know, and I used to teach this at uh, my own church, Westminster in Toronto, when I was pastoring there for fourteen years that the tithe is the Lord's. Now, if your church that you're involved with is not speaking to the culture prophetically, if it's not wrestling with the issue of Christian education, if it's not wrestling with the, the issue of diaconal care for the elderly and the orphan and the widow, and is unconcerned about mm-hmm. these things, but it is concerned just about bigger barns and better, better sound systems, uh, but, but is actually compromised and woke, um, then you need to think through the administration of your tithe uh, because we are obligated to God to take responsibility for our tithe and say, Lord, where do you want me to put this? Now, if you if your church is engaged in those things, by all means, make the church eldership the administrator of your tithe. Uh, but if the, your church is not concerned with health, welfare, education, and the prophetic ministry of the church, then you need to think about where your tithe is going and what other Christian institutions, organizations might be worthy recipients of a portion of that tithe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that that's actually one of the ways in which God holds churches accountable and elders boards accountable. Um, you know, if uh, if there's a, a, let's say there's a family who, uh, are part of a church that uh, is struggling in uh, in its cultural engagement, struggling in uh, understanding some of these principles that we've been talking about, and uh, and and you you but your family feels called to stay and be a part of the reformation of that church. I admire those. Uh, that we have I have plenty of friends in that category who have stayed at their churches that maybe made some some poor decisions, uh, trying to be an advocate for change from within. Um, but what better way for you to communicate to your leadership that they are on the wrong path than to uh, begin to fund uh, Christian ministries that are doing the, the, the biblically faithful things in terms of engaging culture and training up the next generation in uh, Christian worldview? 
Uh, I think that that's one of the ways that God holds elders boards accountable is through the faithful tithe that's either given or withheld from churches that are, are um, following their mandate or not. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very good point. Joe, uh, I haven't, uh, you, you mentioned uh, architecture and new build churches in Toronto. I haven't kept up with that, uh, that development. I'll just say that, uh, I'd be curious to see Christian architects uh, coming up with blueprints for worship sanctuary, worship kitchen, worship office blocks. That's right. Yeah, it's worth checking into actually before before the next episode. We should probably uh, look into that for for people just and and just let them know where those where those things are at right now. But. that was certainly the case yeah. when we were looking at uh, property in Toronto. That's right. And that was, uh, that was pushing 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago. 15 years ago, yeah. And I think that you, you just brought up a good point. It's, it's a humorous point, Ryan, but I think it is a good point when you're talking about all these sorts of things. And the question becomes, what, uh, what does obedience look like when Christians live in a culture that is unfairly taxing and unfairly doing these things. And I do think you brought up a great point. I think that there's nothing wrong with, I think that's actually a very uh, wise thing that Christians ought to be doing is, are there ways for us to label our facilities that, uh, that uh, save us from the, the unjust taxation of the government? I think that everything within uh, legal means to do that are worth Christians pursuing. Uh, because I think that's just, uh, we're, we're called, we're commanded to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And so when we can come up with creative solutions to protect the church's resources like that, I think that's a really wise and, and uh, good thing to do. Right. Right. Well, guys, thanks. Uh, thanks so much. Uh, this concludes uh, our, uh, our question period. Uh, we have uh, we have indexed and responded to every possible question on the subject of the Ten Commandments. Uh, if you didn't hear it here, it doesn't exist. But, uh, <laughs> we'll be we'll be getting into some uh, some new subjects in the uh, the coming weeks and months. Nate is going to be around uh, more often. We look forward to uh, to having him as a, as a regular fixture on the show going forward. Uh, We'll talk about that. We don't. Uh, you don't uh, necessarily need to show up every week, but uh, but we'll look forward to uh, to having you join us uh, on the regular. I, I I'm ready to serve when needed. Well, we're grateful for it. I'm Ryan Aris, Joe Boot, Nate Wright have been with me again. Uh, this has been the podcast for Cultural Reformation. We remind you that from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever. We'll look forward to being with you again next week. May God bless you.